0: 1 and just looking at verses 21 through 23 and I want to read this for us and uh, just allow this passage to uh, soak into our hearts and allow the Lord to begin to speak to us. And you who were who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. A couple of things that Paul does here in these couple of verses, and as we just come off of verses 15 to 20 with this great Christology and this beautiful portrayal of who Christ is, turns his focus back again to the believers of Colossae and reminds them in verse 21 of their old state, their old state of being, their old condition in verse 21. He says, "In you who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds." And you Colossian believers, literally alienated, shut off from fellowship, shut off from intimacy with God. Before Christ, without Christ, we are shut off from intimacy, from relationship, from connection with God. And so he's reminding them that at one time, they as Colossian believers now, at one time were cut off from that fellowship with God. They were hostile in mind. Literally, they were adversaries of God. Now, he's not saying this to indicate that they woke up every day and said, I'm going to be an adversary of God. But by the state of their hearts and their, the focus of their lives, they were living contrary to the glory of God and contrary to the will of God. But then he says that doing evil deeds, that this was their nature, this was their position, this, this unethical position of their hearts. And so I think by his phrasing there, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that I think it's important for us to remember that if we look at the theology of sin from Genesis through Revelation, that the reality that we face here is that we aren't sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. Because sometimes we can begin to categorize and say, well, I wasn't that bad. You know, before I came to Christ, I wasn't that bad. Or, you know, the things that I do compared to other people, it's not that bad. But it's not a condition of how bad our deeds were. It's a condition of our hearts without Christ, that we were sinners by nature, that we were cut off from God. We were adversaries of God. And how that was manifested for some people may have looked more extreme than others. Sometimes sinners can be more well behaved than others. But every one of these Colossian believers and every one of us, without Christ, before Christ, we were by nature sinners, by nature hostile to God, by nature alienated from a relationship with God. Again, it's not the scale of badness. If I were to make you an omelet with a five-egg omelet, which and it's kind of big, but maybe you're hungry, and I held out to you two options. The first omelet I made had one rotten egg in it. The other four were good. The second omelet I made had three rotten eggs, but two of them were good. Which one are you eating? Neither. It doesn't matter if it was one rotten egg, three rotten eggs, five rotten eggs, two rotten eggs. It's a rotten omelet. Apart from Christ, we are sinners. It doesn't matter how many rotten eggs were in our lives. We're, we were rotten omelets. Some people are well-behaved. Others aren't. Because so, sometimes we get this mentality. Even as we think about friends and coworkers, or their lives are really messed up. though, they really need Jesus. And then we think about the people in our lives who seem to be generally good and, and polite. and all, Oh, they don't need Jesus as much. We all need Jesus. It doesn't matter how polite we look on the outside. It's a condition of the heart. And sometimes in society, we can learn to act appropriately and behave appropriately. But without Christ, we're sinners. And Paul reminding them of the greatness and majesty of Jesus who forgave them regardless of how they viewed themselves. That before Christ, he says to them, you were alienated from God. You were hostile to God. You were doing evil deeds because that defined who you were. But that was their old state. The second point he makes is their new state in verse 22. Where it says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He is now reconciled. And we've seen this come up already in Colossians chapter 1. This idea of reconciliation with God. That this is part of the heart of the gospel message. That God takes people who were alienated, hostile, and doing evil deeds. And reconciles them back into a right relationship with God. So that we can be presented. Commended to God by Jesus as holy as sacred as pure blameless without blemish without fault and above reproach before him above reproach without accusation talk about the power of the gospel the magnificence of jesus christ that all of us can say that we were once alienated, hostile, and doing evil deeds, but now we're in verse 22, that because of the goodness and kindness and love of Jesus, we are holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the gospel. And it's not just this one-time thing that, oh, on, on May 6, 1988, I, I received Jesus as my savior, and, and now it's kind of been my journey. That This This is what changed about me on May 6, 1988 and has continued to be true of me every single day of my life. That every day of my life, I depend on the gospel. I depend on the fact that the only reason that I'm holy and blameless and above reproach is because of Jesus, not because of me. And so sometimes I'm frustrated when we get caught in this. This language because it sounds humble and it, it, it's like i'm just a wretched sinner, saved by grace, and I, I understand the concept of that, but we get so focused on i'm just a wretched sinner, I'm a worm and I'm, I'm nothing. you were that was true of you, but remember verse 22 that as a follower of Christ now as a believer believer, he can present us to God holy blameless above reproach. And we've, we've seen the bumper stickers. I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. And the reason sometimes this concerns me is because if we keep saying, I'm a wretched sinner, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven, that's a spiritual way of giving ourselves license to keep on sinning. Well, I'm just a wretched sinner. I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. And, and so subtly we tell ourselves, yeah, just keep on sinning. It's just who I am and who I'm always going to be. And in the process, we default to this old state. We default to the old life of being alienated, hostile, and doing evil deeds. Rather than daily recognizing that because of Jesus, he presents me wholly blameless and above reproach before him. So I want to live up to this new life in Christ. I don't want to just dismiss the fact that I have a tendency to to go back to this stuff. I want to live into this new identity that I have in Christ. So Paul reminding them not, not to shame them, not to guilt them, not to convict them, but this is who you were, this is who you now are. You were alienated, you were hostile, you were doing evil deeds, but now your new state, Of reconciliation, you are holy and blameless and above reproach. And so live like that. Live up to that. And I know that in the process of sanctification, we'll never be perfect until we get to heaven. But the question becomes, how do we live that out then? Do we live that out saying, well, I'll never be perfect? Or do we say, but it doesn't mean that today I can't be closer than I was yesterday. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Our new state is wholly blameless above reproach. And the call of Christ is to live up to that because we have this third issue that Paul addresses in verse 23. And that is the uncertain state. The uncertain state of professing believers. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Sorry, I had a, like a fuzz on my glasses, and it was really bothering me. I could have done that without pointing it out, but I just, I don't know why I had to. If indeed you continue in the faith, if you persist in the faith, which Paul is indicating that it's possible that there are some who do not continue in the faith. We see this with a person named Demas. If you look at some of Paul's letters, his language about Demas changes. He starts off in one of his letters saying, Demas greets you, and he's one of us. But then as you fast forward chronologically, Paul comes to this point of saying that Demas has left us because he was never truly one of us. Something happened with Demas. That Demas, for a time, was was considered a, a, a genuine follower of Jesus, but then something happened and he abandoned it. And Paul says, I don't know what to make of Demas any longer. And so he says, if you continue in the faith, stable, built on a firm foundation, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, to be steadfast, to be immovable, To not shift away from the hope of the gospel. To not move away from it. You've seen this. You've seen people who pray a prayer. And with great enthusiasm, they start going to church and they start going to Bible study. And then the next thing you know, they don't seem to care about Jesus anymore. They want nothing to do with Christianity anymore. And we're left in this spot of what happened? Are, are they saved? Or are they not saved? What's going on with them? And again, we've touched on this before, but I think part of the problem that in American Christianity we've seen for since the Great Awakenings kind of is we've become focused on, we want decisions when Jesus wants disciples. We want decisions and Jesus wants disciples. And so we will do whatever it takes. Just, just pray this prayer. That's all you have to do. You know, just pray this prayer and then you can go to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do the rest of your life. Just pray this prayer. And so two-year-old, just say this prayer. Make me feel better about your eternity. But then when they're 20 and have gone so far away from Jesus, we don't recognize their faith anymore. We, what, what do I make of that? We gave a partial gospel. We just said, pray this prayer, you can go to heaven. Jesus, and and I've done this too, but Jesus never commanded us to lead people in a prayer so they can go to heaven. He said, go make disciples. Go make followers. We want decisions. Jesus wants disciples. Because we see this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13, verses 19 through 23, which highlights this very thing that Paul's talking about. When he says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The reality that Jesus is teaching in this parable is, as you sow the seed of the gospel, you're going to see a lot of different responses. You're going to share the gospel with some people, and they're not going to want anything to do with it. You're going to share the gospel with some people, and they get it, but they don't want it you will share the gospel with some people, and they will snatch it up with great joy. And they're going to be on fire for Jesus. But after a couple of months, suddenly everything has changed. Now, Jesus never really gives us any help to know, what do we make of this? But again, if we apply the Great Commission that what Jesus is looking for is disciples, not decisions. Then we begin to put this on here and say, who's a disciple and who's not? Who's following Jesus? Now, I think we need to understand that there's some people who follow Jesus and through different circumstances, they kind of get derailed a bit, but they eventually come back around. That happens a lot as well. But sometimes we get so focused on right here, right now, Okay, they're excited about Jesus now, so great. Uh-oh, they're not excited about Jesus right now. What do we do? I started playing trumpet in fifth grade. And I played through college. And shortly after college, I still played, but then life just got busy, and the trumpet stayed in its case for over 15 years. But then I came back out. And I began to play again and find joy in that again. Now... For those 15 years, I always wanted to play. I wanted to make room in life to play, but just wasn't a high enough priority. Was I still a trumpet player for those 15 years? Yeah. I was kind of a former trumpet player, but I wasn't actively a trumpet player. So, what do we make of somebody who follows Jesus and falls away? Again, as I've said before, there's a problem. And again, we get focused on are they saved or are they not saved? There's a problem. There's a problem because Jesus isn't the Lord of their life. Jesus is kind of on the back burner. Whatever the state of their salvation, the, the reality is there's a problem. There's something, if they are a believer, there's something terribly wrong in their discipleship. If there's not... If they're not saved, then there's definitely something wrong with their discipleship. But again, the, the starting perspective needs to be discipleship, because look at what Paul said bef- uh, I'm sorry, look what Jesus said there at the end of that parable. The one who hears the word and understands it and continues in it, he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. Scripture tells us you'll recognize them by their fruit so we could look at anyone who professes at one time to have received Christ as Savior and just say, I'm not judging your salvation, I'm just saying do you see fruit? Do you consider yourself an active disciple of Jesus and is there fruit that demonstrates that? And if not, there's a concern. I don't know if you're saved or not. Jesus does, but I don't. But what I do know is there's a problem. How can I help come alongside of you to get you to follow Jesus again and follow Jesus for the long haul? Again, we want decisions. Jesus wants disciples. So on the one hand, we look at this and say, okay, there's just looking at Colossians. There's people without Christ. There's people with Christ. And there's, People who may or may not be continuing in Christ. And it's easy to come to that point and we start to go through a list of people in our lives. Okay, yeah, they they definitely don't know Christ. They definitely do know Christ. I don't know about them. When they were five, they prayed a prayer. For a while, they, they were following Jesus, but now they've walked away and I don't know what to do with that. Pray for them and minister to them. But sometimes I think it's so easy to look at scriptures and we start going through a list of the people that we know of how they fit into the passage. How do we fit into the passage? In you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Where do we fall in this passage? If we closely examined our lives, would we say, verse 22. I'm living, verse 22. Because my life is growing in holiness, blamelessness, above reproachness. I'm becoming like Jesus. There's fruit being produced through my life for the glory of God. And I love Jesus and I'm growing in Him. Or might we say, verse 23. To say, I don't know. I used to really be on fire for Jesus, but... The past year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, I've kind of been going through the motions. I'm doing all the external stuff, but I know that in my heart, something's not what it used to be. Or what about verse 21? To say, Lord, there's still a lot of old state stuff happening in my life. I try to pretend it's not there, but there's a lot of it there. And again, it's not a scale of how bad is it. It's a scale of is it there or not. However bad, we might want to rate it. That can go anywhere from adultery to lying to gossip to being judgmental to being self-righteous and a long list of other sins that could be true of us. We know self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is, pff, every, everybody I know is either verse 21 or 23, and if they could all be like me in verse 22, the world would be so much better. If we ever find ourselves saying, if only every Christian was more like me, the church would be better, we're diving into self-righteousness. Because I think if the Holy Spirit is active, we might have a tendency to say, I'm verse 21 or 23. Because I don't know about you, but the longer I follow Jesus, the more little things he points out in me. It's like the Apostle Paul. You see this progression of his life. And when he first comes to Christ, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. And then by the end of his life, I'm the worst sinner that ever walked the planet. I say, but how does that factor with what you said earlier? still the same Paul who recognized that he was wholly blameless and above reproach. But he recognized even the small things. See, when you first come to Christ, you immediately are convicted of the big stuff. But then, over the years, the Lord starts getting nitpicky. And starts pointing out those little things. That thought, that judgmental thought that we had. That at one point we would have shrugged off, but now we feel like we are the worst sinner that ever lived because we had that judgmental thought. What's the state of our souls this morning? As we think about the magnificence of Christ from verses 15 to 20. I remember in Colossians 1 where Paul says, live a life worthy of the gospel. Live live a life of equal value. Are we living life of equal value? Or are we letting what the Song of Solomon called the little foxes come in and eat at the garden? The little sins that we think there are just, they're little sins, they're not that big of a deal. And we let them slide. Where do we find our hearts? Do we find ourselves more defined by the alienation, hostility, and doing evil deeds? Do we find ourselves unstable, sometimes steadfast, but frequently shifting? Or do we find ourselves growing in holiness, blamelessness, and being above reproach, and bearing fruit? Wherever we find ourselves, I pray that we would never say, I feel completely fine about where I am in my walk with Christ. In just celebrating our 26th anniversary uh, of recognizing that in 26 years of marriage, I've never felt like a great husband. And there's a part of me that never wants to because I want to keep growing. And if we don't feel like we have room to grow, then we have no motivation to grow. What's the state of our walk with Jesus this morning? Are we going through the motions? Are we letting little foxes run amok in our lives? Are we living up to our new state, the new nature that we have in Christ? Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast